It's Gary and Roscoe in booth one. Welcome, loyal listeners, and hello to all our new fans out there. We had a great response to our last episode, uh, the live recording with our guest improv comedy guru, Sharna Halpern, in front of the uh, live audience at Steppenwolf Theater. And we now have dozens of new people signed up for our A-list at booth-one.com. Surely and steadily, we're building a great fan base, and I feel that we will be quite famous very soon. Are are you ready for the celebrity status and the the white-hot spotlight that comes with it, Roscoe? I, I have often already felt famous in my own mind, which has caused me a number of problems over the years <laughs> with coworkers, strangers on the street, waitresses. <laughs> you know, I want to be just famous enough so that I can pick up the phone and always get a prime booth at the old Ebbett Grill in Washington, D.C. Yes. at any time of the day or night <laughs> and then order like four dozen uh, uh, oysters. Like that's all did. that really matters. That's all that really matters. I'm sorry, Mr. Roscoe. We're almost out of those oysters, but let me run back to the kitchen and make sure they don't give the last <laughs> of the Delaware Bay oysters away. We've always had such a great time at that restaurant for, for our listeners who don't know it. The old Ebbett Grill is one of the oldest uh, dining establishments in Washington, D.C., in fact, on all of the East Coast. And uh, boy... I would say in the United States. Boy, do they have some great seafood. Well, you know, we often go in February to New York, and that's just around the corner now. Anyone who's in the Washington, D.C. area, absolutely stop by the Old Ebbett Grill. Apparently, they've just bought sponsorship in booth <laughs> one, and that's why we're, we're talking all, about I don't them. know why. I just, <laughs> it just came to mind. I just, I just love them. We need to discuss Hamilton for a moment. We are going to Hamilton tomorrow. We are. For our second viewing, we're going here in Chicago to the matinee on a Sunday matinee, and couldn't be more excited about it. We did have a raffle drawing, Roscoe, at yes. our live recording uh, a couple of weeks ago with the aforementioned Sharna Halpern, where if people signed up for our A-list, they could enter a drawing. Well, we have a winner. Yes, and the winner is? Loyal and longtime listener Fran Bernstein. Really? Is our winner. Wow. Fran will be meeting us in front of the Private Bank Theater here in Chicago on, I guess it's on Madison or Monroe. It's on Monroe, Monroe. I guess. How yeah. long have you lived in Chicago? Not long enough, apparently. And uh, we will uh, then escort her in as our guest, and she will sit uh, side by side with us, cheek by jowl, at Hamilton. Wow. And get a big A-list experience. And I heard we, our seats are not very good. We're in the 10th row center on the main floor. <laughs> on the aisle, I believe. On the aisle. Yes, oh dear. <laughs> and I, I spoke to someone last night who was very excited because he was able to get two tickets in the balcony for a mere $700 each in Chicago. Wow. Well, we, we managed to find a way to get house seats, uh, which are prime seats being held by producers and presenters, and the actors mm-hmm. have access, you know, crew people and things, and... We uh, requested some house seats uh, from someone who works for the presenter here in Chicago. And what do you know? Uh, booth one is, is so highly regarded that uh, we were able to get our seats. Well, really, Gary, do we ever have bad seats? No, I'm going to get to that in just a few moments with something else. I did want to mention about Hamilton, though, that Hamilton has set the record in New York for the most money ever made in a single week by a Broadway show grossed $3.3 million. 
uh, to put that in per into perspective for somebody who doesn't understand the economics on Broadway, a million dollars a week is a lot of money for a show to gross. Over eight performances. Uh, that's the typical mm. number of performances that a, a Broadway mm. show will do. $3.3 million is astounding, uh, surpassing... Uh, even Wicked, which grossed uh, $3.2 million. Did it really? It did. The, the highest premium ticket price charged by a Broadway box office uh, was for Hamilton, $998. Not for, okay. every, not for every ticket, but for a premium ticket at the box office. This and, is not on the secondary market. And, and I'm guessing that much of the main floor is, is now considered uh, a prime ticket. That was last week that Wicked grossed over $3 million? In 2013, uh, during holiday week, Wicked grossed $3.2 million. But I believe for, they did nine performances that uh, week. I, I believe they did do nine performances, mm -hmm. so this really, really surpassed the record. Yeah. The previous premium ticket price record was $700 for, can you guess which show that was for? I'll uh, tell you. Uh, wait, wait, I'm going to guess. Um, it's only a play. No. No. <laughs> Barry Manilow on Broadway. Oh, jeez. Also in 2013. Um, the show's um, average paid admission last week was $303, which is a record for average paid admission, even. Isn't, it's it's, it's crazy. What else grossed a million dollars last week? Uh, it's always The Lion King. Well, yeah, absolutely. Aladdin. Aladdin. Yes. The Disney shows. Yes. Wicked. And... No, Your favorite, no, no, Natasha no. Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which, oh. we, which we talked about a little bit. I, I wonder if there's something wrong with me that I didn't like the, the big red comet. I'll never get the name of that show, right? The Great Comet Natasha of 1812. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. And why I keep getting that wrong is it depends on where you, where you look. The, the title of the show reads differently. Yes. Some places they cut out the, the Natasha Pierre part and it's just the Great Comet. Or The Great Comet of 1812. Yeah, and I've seen one that has sort of this symbolic logo where you can read Natasha Pierre, and then The Great is very small, and it's kind of buried in a, a lot of uh, filigree, frou-frou drawing, and then you can just see Comet of 1812. We didn't talk about another show uh, that you saw in New York on our last uh, program. You saw a uh, play with Mary Louise Parker, and... How did that go? It was uh, probably the worst theater-going experience of my life. Since the Great Comet of 1812. <laughs> well, it was, the, it was the, the same day. This was the matinee. And this is... Of Heisenberg. Of Heisenberg. Heisenberg was... Scientist. A, a scientist, but a, a nuclear a physicist. It's a two-hander. It's a two-character show. Just like the Great Comet, when you walk into the theater, you're confronted with the audience sitting on stage looking at you. When I walked into Heisenberg, half the audience is on stage looking at me. And it's a two-character show, which is a series of blackout scenes between Mary Louise Parker, who's in her 40s, and a man who's nearly 80, with whom she is smitten. And every time there's a blackout and the lights go back up, I think they're different characters or they have different accents. And the, one of the reasons I didn't know what was happening is the most terrible audience experience in my lifetime. When will I learn not to go to I, Wednesday matinees? Wh yeah, what, what were you thinking? Did, did I tell you this no, story not at before? All. No. The average age of the audience was about 115, and it's a one-act show. So they basically say there's no late seating. I, I'm lucky enough to get an eighth-row center seat. 
Of course you are. And I get to the theater late, and my eighth row center seat will require crawling over about 20 people. So I said to the usher, oh my, could I possibly, and I gesture back because there's a handful of empty seats in the back of the house, and she goes, I can't tell you yes, but I'm not going to stop you. So Sweet. (laughs) I go back, and I sit in my seat, and a... (laughs) A stage manager comes out. This, this is what's, what theater going has gotten to. A stage manager comes out and he says, please listen to me. I'm going to make an announcement. I want everyone to take out your cell phones. Take them out. Take out your cell phones and I want you to look at them. And I want you to turn them off. Do not silence them. Do not put them on vibrate. This is a very quiet theater. Even if they vibrate, we will hear it. And if someone sends you a text, your phone will still ping. So as he's trying to, to make this announcement, the audience is talking over him, and it's driving me crazy. And I thought, we're going to meet with calamity. Yeah. So I'm sitting in the back. I have a soft voice that really doesn't carry. So I did this. <laughs> Quiet! <laughs> <laughs> it's actually come to that. I screamed quiet, and I shut them up, and I scared the hell out of the people sitting near me. For some reason, the directors decided that while the stage manager is making the announcement, the actors should wander on stage and start moving the set around. Like the two saw, actors. The two actors. Mary Louise. They come out. Mary Louise they... Parker's coming out and moving a chair around the set. I think the audience thought they were stagehands and didn't realize that the show essentially was beginning. The show starts. Mary Louise Parker, who's doing her Midwestern voice, yeah, and talking like this. Mm-hmm. Two minutes into the show, a woman five rows in front of me turns to her daughter and says, I can't hear them. <laughs> shh, shh, quiet. I can't hear them. Shh. The quarter of the audience who's around this be- becomes beside themselves. And, and, and you can't tell a deaf person to shut up because she can't hear you telling them to shut up. So this, somebody gets up and glares at them and then walks and sits behind me. I thought they were going to stop the show. The usher figures out what's happening. She goes and gets this old woman. They take her out of the theater. Apparently what had happened is the batteries were dead in her hearing device. Oh, dear. It's the one that they, they give oh, you in the, the lobby. Oh, it's the headset and thing. And I guess yeah. there's no way of knowing until the show starts that it's not working. So by the time she got back into the theater and calmed down, I look at the stage and suddenly the man with whom she's fallen in love with has an Irish accent. I have no idea what is happening in this play. Does it take place in in, in different time periods? I mean, does it jump from uh, future to past to present, much like a play we saw recently, Constellations? it It was the same setup. Metaphysics, two characters, blackouts. Something has changed between each scene. Mm. The variables of their life have changed. And then when I met the Great Comet that night, I was talking to the man next to me, and I said, have you seen Heisenberg? And he said, oh, yes, it was so good, I saw it twice. I said, oh, exactly, I can understand why, because <laughs> I didn't want to sound like a rube. And I said, but did you see a play called Constellations? Weren't they kind of similar? And he goes, oh, no, one was about quantum theory, and the other one was about quantum mechanics, or something, I don't know. I don't know what the hell I saw. What a horrible week in New York. I could have seen Sutton Foster in Sweet Charity, and she would have sung loudly and danced, and yeah, I would have had to follow yeah. the plot, and it would have been pretty and colorful, and yeah. I would have been really happy. Something else that's uh, been selling well, I hear, is the Sally Field production of Glass Menagerie, which doesn't even open till March. March. 
I should snatch one up immediately. I would think so. She's gonna, I can't wait for that. You mentioned something to me uh, off the air a little while ago about uh, something else about a Glass Menagerie production. I I know that it's one of your favorite plays, and I know that you've seen it over and over and over again in all kinds of iterations. There's one iteration, however, that has never been seen or... Hasn't hasn't been been seen seen in in 50 years. Well, come on, Gary. Glass Menagerie is probably one of the three or four or five greatest American players of all time. The beloved Shirley Booth did a TV version of Glass Menagerie in 1966-67. I believe it was filmed. So it was not videotaped, but filmed. And it's been lost. Back in the day, you didn't anticipate rebroadcasts or that videotape would exist. And you'd see Shirley Booth and people would watch it and then who cares? So the final print has been misplaced. But someone found the outtakes, the alternate scenes that were shot. So they've reassembled the piece using alternate shots. And it's going to be shown on Turner Classic Movies. In? in in December. Oh, this month. This month, which we had a day and time, so we could tell our listeners. Well, it'll be on it several up. times. Look up your uh, TCM listing because that's something that you wouldn't want to miss if you're any sort of theater fan. Am I correct about that? I you are, and and Shirley Booth is not is Shirley Booth made four movies in her entire career, a number of memorable stage performances in the TV. Of course, she's you and I know her from Hazel on TV. Sure, absolutely. But that's been years ago. So Shirley Booth is not widely known. There isn't much of her to much recorded or, or preserved of her to see. Yeah. So this will be a rare treat. But someone said just because it's missing doesn't mean it's good. But I suspect it's going to be actually pretty good, yeah. just for the spectacle yeah. of it. Speaking of spectacle, I had a. Uh, experience uh, without you earlier last week. Because I was waylaid at the Great Comet. That's exactly right. We went once again to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, and I'm going to take my headset off here for a moment and do something, and you're going to have to describe this to the listeners. Okay. Oh. Tell them what I'm wearing. He's wearing an elephant hat. (laughs) It's got a a big snout. It's got floppy ears that that I'm shaking my head, so the floppy ears flop. Trunks. They're called trunks. Uh, Yeah, it does have a big trunk sticking out of the front of it. And blue eyes. Well, they're selling a lot of elephant merchandise, even though there are no elephants in the show. Yeah, either it's leftover... Or people still dream about the elephants. I had to sort of go seek this out because I wanted an elephant souvenir uh, because we talk about them quite a lot. But the circus was fantastic. We sat in the fourth row, dead center, when the lions and tigers were in the cage in the middle of the rink. You could smell them from where we were sitting. No. And you could hear them you know, purring loudly and making noises and scratching their little pedestals that they were sitting on. It was absolutely thrilling. Wow. (laughs) And the show was great. We talked about this some episodes ago about what the new plot is, and it's this sort of space search through planets and things. So there's lots of planetary imagery and rocket ships and ray guns, things like that going on. The ringmaster is searching the universe for the great circus acts that have been stolen by this wicked, evil space queen who thinks she's going to monopolize all of the circus acts and and be queen of the circus. Well, of course, she 
gets defeated in the end, but nicely. <laughs> you know, there, there are kids out there. She, she, she doesn't get blasted away. Um, uh, she gets coerced into uh, being cooperative with the rest of the circus acts. But it, it was phenomenal. We had the greatest time, and I'm so sorry you missed it. So there, there were clowns, tigers, lions acrobats. There was a sheet of ice surrounding um, the entire middle of the arena so that every once in a while these ice skaters would come out and do phenomenal feats of acrobatics and uh, aerial uh, assaults on (laughs) things. It was really quite extraordinary. At one point, actual fire got lit from the front of the stage all the way to the backstage. So there was this ring of actual fire on the ice. I, 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 I don't know how they did it. They must wow. have some sort of accelerant. Did they play the Johnny Cash song? R- ring, ring of Fire. Ring of fire. They, did, they did not play the Johnny Cash <laughs> so song. So tell me two, two things. Was it a full house? It was pretty full. And we went on a Thursday night. Yes, An I early think it was show. a Thursday night. At lots of children? Lots of children. Did they, did they annoy you? They did not. They were fascinated by the entire thing. We had some very small children sitting just a few rows in front of us, small like two and three-year-olds, and they were mesmerized from beginning to end, and it was was almost more fascinating to watch them being fascinated by what was going on than sometimes to watch what was going on. Uh, They were, it was just, it was just thrilling. It really was. Ding, 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 ding. Thank you. (laughs) And I had a date. You were actually with an attractive blonde woman. I, I had, I had our producer as my date. We actually purchased two aisle seats so she was sitting by me <laughs> just so we could have the leg room and the right. arm room. And the lack of encroachment. And the lack of encroachment. And it was, uh, it, it was great. Go to the circus, everyone. I, 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 can't, I can't recommend it any more highly. I recently was listening to our earlier show when we spoke about the circus and the last show that the elephants were in. And you said this is the first time in 134 years that the elephants have not been in the show. And I thought... Can you imagine 134 years ago, before there was film and television and photography? I mean, I guess you could see a picture of an elephant somewhere, maybe. But So to be at a circus 134 years ago and seeing a live elephant must have been like you and me going and seeing a dinosaur live on stage. It must have been an unbelievable experience. Yeah, very exotic, I'm sure. I read once that Tippi Hedren, when she was raising Melanie Griffith, they had a a lion that they kept as a house pet. And they thought that was a cool idea because it was the 60s and, you know, the lion would hang out by their pool. And looking back, she realized it was a monumentally stupid idea on her part to put herself and her child at danger. In the uh, ever... In the ever... (laughs) In the ever-increasing raised awareness uh, for elephant conservation, there was a championship polo match uh, played in Nepal recently, just actually a few days ago. The polo pachyderms Elephant polo. Uh, Nepal has hosted the annual uh, international polo event championships, elephant polo, since 1982, attracting celebrities and people from all over the world to take part in one of what was probably one of the most unusual sporting events ever. So do you ride on an elephant? the The game, it's based on horse polo. But there's two people on the back of the elephant, a, a driver called a mahout, and the player who is concentrating on scoring, and that player is holding uh, a mallet that's 
2.5 meters long. That's about 96 inches. So I don't know, what is that? That's uh, that's like eight feet. Uh, to reach the ground from the back of the elephant, eight four-member teams took part uh, from uh, Britain, the United States, Australia, Iceland, Holland, and Sri Lanka, as well as Nepal. I, I can't say I've ever heard of a uh, United States elephant polo team. No. No one's, ever, never, no, no one's ever asked me for I've money. I've never heard of this. <laughs> well, <laughs> How do you like steer an elephant to run around and do all of that? Uh, I, I don't think it's quite as fast-paced as horse polo. Anyway, they've always been ahead of the game in the way that they treat elephants during this event, and um, they prefer that their elephants remain as elephants, and they've decided that uh, elephant polo really isn't that. So this is the last elephant polo championship that's going to be played in the world, or at least in Nepal. There might be some black market elephant polo games oh. going on, but I doubt it because you need a lot of space. There have not been elephants at Lincoln Park Zoo in years, but once upon a time you could, you could see them from the bus. I could take a bus to work through Lincoln Park and I could look out the bus and see an elephant. Like, what? where else in America, on your commute to work, can you see an, an elephant grazing? I, I remember a number of years ago, I was uh, working in Detroit, and I was working on doing this fundraising event. And uh, we, we engaged a music director, and I went to the music director's house one day, and he happened to live across the street from this giant wall, and behind the giant wall was the Detroit Zoo. And from the front porch of his house, you could hear lions roaring, and you could hear elephants trumpeting. You could hear bears roaring on occasion. <laughs> I but you couldn't that see was pretty, them. You couldn't see oh. them. They were behind this wall. But it, very much like the Lincoln Park thing you're talking about, yeah. strolling through Lincoln Park, you could often hear the, the animals. Let's talk about movies for a minute. There's a number of wonderful movies playing, and I, I love living in Chicago. I, I love the city, I love the vibe, I love the people, but, you know, there is something to be said about uh, living in New York and having access to about every film that is being shown anywhere in the world, and it's being shown somewhere in New York. And it's a shame that some things are not being shown here any longer, or they came and they went I know that there's a couple of places still showing Moonlight. Loving is still playing at like one theater someplace. Birth of a Nation came and went. The This Ang Lee movie, that's an interesting piece of uh, filmmaking. Um, you know, it, it's it's filmed in, what, 120 frames a second or something with, right. with two uh, 4K uh, resolution cameras all at the same time. And, I mean, our, our usual film watching um, traditionally is 24 frames a second. Right. I can't imagine how 120 frames a second looks. And they, they actually they didn't show it in that format in Chicago, but the reviews I read said it was so hyper real that it looked artificial and uh, creepy. I think most movies come to Chicago that are in New York. Some of the really small independent or foreign films don't. But, but I have, if you live in the country or the suburbs or a small town, there can be Oscar winning films that, that never play in your city. Yeah friends that work at the Library of Congress in Culpeper, they have to drive an hour to a big town to see a lot of mainstream movies that, that you live a block and a half from a 12-screen movie theater. Yeah. The other thing that endlessly irritates me is throughout the entire summer, there, there won't be a single movie that is of interest to me. They're all superhero action movies. Right. Matt Damon 
The Born Identity, Tom Cruise, and the latest remake of Mission Impossible, the latest sequel. And starting about now, starting in, in mid-November, the theaters are so glutted with great films that, that even a film that gets good reviews doesn't last and gets pulled right away. Tom Hanks... To make room for To make the room next for one. the next one. Mm. Tom Hanks opened in... Um, Inferno. Inferno, yeah. And I think that was pulled after a week. It didn't get very good reviews. It did not get good but, reviews, but it did not get panned. I mean, it didn't yeah. get a zero on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, you I, didn't. Yeah. I, I wanted to see it. I mean, who's not a Tom Hanks fan? Uh, right. And I drew, I drew a chart the other day because there's three movies playing that I know are going to disappear in a week or two. And if I don't get to them now, I'll never see them in the theaters. So I had to do charts and diagrams of which movie was playing at which time, in what yeah. location. But, you know, the, as you mentioned, the movie Loving, the most wonderful advance word of mouth, terrific reviews. I have to see it at 1030 in the morning or I won't see it. Right. Down to the show. Showing one time. Um, yeah. Moonlight. Birth of a Nation, as you mentioned. We read about that film for six months and they said it's going to be the unbeatable front runner for the Oscar. It's the greatest, most moving film you've ever seen. Then it opens to middling reviews and disastrous business. Yeah, and and the and the somewhat scandal uh, involving the director as well. Right. So now uh, that kind of killed it there. Right. And what I what I want to talk about for a second, Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty has been a movie star since I was a child. Warren Beatty was a TV star. is is a very young man. His first big hit was Splendor in the Grass in 1961. So he's still making movies and making them less frequently. So his big film just opened, which is called Rules Don't Apply, mm. which I think is a bad title for a movie because I couldn't remember it and I had to keep looking it up. Mm -hmm. So he worked on this film for years and he started filming it in early 2014. They filmed for 10 weeks and then he went back a year later and, and started refilming in February of 2015. Then he spent a year editing the film. It opened in wide release on Thanksgiving Day. It had the worst Thanksgiving opening of any film uh, opening in wide release in the history of motion pictures. And on its first day of release... Sit down, Gary. I, 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 I'm holding on to my seat. I'm holding my elephant cap tightly to my head, lest it, lest it fly off. On the first day of release, its per-screen average was $129. Oh, dear. <laughs> which, which meant at $10 a ticket, 12 people went. Oh. You know, in, in the area where I live, it opened on many screens at a multiplex. It's now down to one showing a day. It's a, I mean, a, a catastrophic opening. Poor, poor. I, I feel bad for Warren Beatty. Do you believe uh, the the reviews? Well, they were all over the map. The New York Times loved it, said it was a delightful film. Other people were much less charitable. Part of the problem is it stars Warren Beatty, and if you're under thirty, you probably don't know who Warren Beatty is. And the other leads were Lily Collins and Alden Ehrenreich. Oh, I'm going to run to the new Alden Ehrenreich movie. Oh, boy. But also in the film, Annette Benning, Matthew Broderick, Alec Baldwin, Candace Bergen, Ed Harris, Martin Sheen. Couldn't give tickets away. You know, so a movie that uh, did not do well when it was released. Uh, th this may not be your favorite film, Roscoe, but it is one of my favorite films, and I think it's a, it's a holiday favorite for the majority of people, especially our listeners. It's a Wonderful Life did not do well, even though it was Frank Capra's most expensive film. I mention it because 
uh, I went to see It's a Wonderful Life, the live radio you play did. last night. Uh, it's been playing here in Chicago every holiday season for 15 years, and I've never gone. Well... This is being done by American Blues Theater at the Greenhouse here in Chicago. It was, well, it was wonderful. It it was a whole immersive experience of singing Christmas carols to get the crowd warmed up. And you're staring at this little set that's sort of a little living room. Off to one side is a Foley uh, expert doing sound effects in this booth uh, with all kinds of things. Do they do it like a radio about, play? They do it exactly like a radio play. And there's even pauses. Uh, there, I think there were three acts, um, even though it only ran 90 minutes. But between each act, they stop and they do promos. They do jingles for sponsors. And I thought, oh, it's going to be, you know, Bonami or some sponsor of, you know, Borden's Milk or something from the 40s. No, they do the sponsors that have sponsored this play for American Blues Theater. Oh, fantastic. Commonwealth Edison was one. There were a couple of restaurants involved, Northern Trust Bank. And this musical director who put this music together, he wrote all these jingles from their original pieces. And they're so clever. Do they perform them live? Yes. Someone steps up to a microphone and he's, he's playing the piano. And he's also playing a bunch of other instruments. Every once in a while, he'll jump up to a microphone and play one of the small parts in, in, the, in the play. Uh, I guess the movie, the play. Um, the guy playing George Bailey was the spitting image of George Bailey. If you closed your eyes and thought of him and you didn't think of Jimmy Stewart, um, then this would be the guy you would want to play George Bailey. He was absolutely wonderful. Uh, and many times I sat... Well, well, we were privileged. We sat, of course, in the front row center. Mm. Were um, you with your produ- our producer? I was with our producer once again, and uh, we were within feet of the performers. And I thought at first that that was going to be a little too close. It turned out to be absolutely the perfect place to sit. Is was, this where they seated you, or, or were these the seats left when you got these, there? These were the seats that we were granted mm. um, by the publicist because we're, we're booth, booth one. one. And... I thought it was going to be a little too close at first, but it turned out to be perfect. There were no heads to look over. There was no encroachment of people in front of you. I could stretch my feet out just a little bit without actually touching the stage. And a number of times, I just put put my head down. And I knew the performers could see this, uh, but, you know, what can you do? I just kind of put my head down a little bit, and I closed my eyes, and I listened to it like a radio play. Well, I, I was choked up. A number of times. It was just spectacularly done uh, and so clever and so well-paced. And I think our producer even said, and, and, and she was quite right about this, they, and good actors, of course, do this. Good plays are about this. They made it seem like they'd never done it before except for you. They were going to do it just for you that night. There was an energy and, a, and an excitement. And it, it wasn't like it wasn't well rehearsed. It, clearly, it was well rehearsed and had been done before. But we felt absolutely privileged to be watching this for what we thought might be the very first time. It was, and that's the essence of good life theater. That was the essence of good life theater. I, 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 I can see why this has been running for 15 years. And if, were some of the, I don't want to 
I don't know if you know this, were some of the actors returning to the show have done it year after year? A number year? of them were returning to the wow. show. This the, this actor playing uh, George, uh, George Bailey was new to the show this year. It was his very first time. And... Um, that shocked me because he was so, so good at it. His name is Brandon Dahlquist. Oh. Very tall, blonde-haired, handsome, Midwestern, wholesome kind of guy. Really, really fantastic. Uh, everybody in the cast was great. Uh, there were uh, eight people um, in the show. As I mentioned, one of them was also the music oh, director. Okay. Yeah, eight of them, and they just alternated parts. The guy playing George Bailey just played George Bailey. Everybody else played multiple things. With superb direction by American Blues Theater's uh, artistic director, Wendy Whiteside. For your listening pleasure, to give you a small taste of what this live radio show is all about, and to share with you the quality of the talent involved, we've assembled a few short audio clips that we obtained from American Blues Theater. We take you now to George Bailey's Bedford Falls. Hey, Ernie. Hiya, George. Oh, hey, Bert. Hey, George. That's one fancy piece of luggage you got there. And one of these days, you're going to see this bag all covered with travel labels. Oh. Italy, Baghdad, Samarkand. Hey, Ernie, how about driving me home in style? Sure, your highness. Hop in the cab. Good afternoon, Mr. Bailey. Oh, well, hello, Violet. Well, hey, you look good. That's some dress you got on there. Oh, this old thing? Why, I only wear it when I don't care how I look. Goodbye, boys. How would you like to... like an organ. Beautiful. You know something? You know, if it wasn't me talking, I'd say you were the prettiest girl in town. Well, why don't you say it? Well, I don't know. Maybe I will. Say, how old are you anyway? Eighteen. Eighteen. Too young or too old? Oh, no, just right. Uh, your age fits you. As I was lumbering down the street. Oh, more singing, huh? Hey, well, then you watch this. Oh, no. Not the old Granville house. I love that place. No, you see, you make a wish, and then you try to break a glass. Oh, George. That place is so full of romance. I think I might like to live in it. In that place? Well, I wouldn't live there even as a ghost. And now you watch this, Your Highness. Second story, right above the parlor. Hot dog! What's going on over there? Who's that? Oh, it's just old man Collins. What'd you wish for, George? Oh, not just one wish. A whole hatful, Mary. Now I know what I'm gonna do tomorrow, and the next day, and the next year, and the year after that. Well, I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off of my feet, and I'm going to see the world. Oh, Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. And then I'll come back to here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. And then I'm going to... Oh, you're going to throw a rock, too? Well, that's pretty good. Well, hey, what do you wish for, Mary? Oh, no. If I tell you, it may not come true. Oh, hey, Mary. Well, come on. What do you want, huh? Uh, do you want the moon? Uh, well, you just say the word, and I'll throw a lasso around it, pull it down, and give it to you. I'll take it. And then what? Oh, well, then you could swallow it, and it all dissolves, see? And, and the moonbeams would shoot out of your fingers and the, your toes and the ends of your hair. And uh, uh, Am I talking too much? Yes! 
Why don't you kiss her instead of talking to her dad? Well, how's that? I said, why don't you kiss her instead of talking to her to dad? You want me to kiss her, huh? Oh, youth is wasted on the wrong people. Well, what's your point, Mr. Potter? My point is you're the only man in town who's licked me. I want to hire you. Manage my affairs. I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. $20,000? $20,000 a year? You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, George? Would I? Say, you're not talking to somebody else around here, are you? You know who I am, don't you? I'm George Bailey. If you're anywhere near Chicago or you hear about It's a Wonderful Life, the radio play or live in Chicago, I I insist that you go. Uh, It's at the Greenhouse here in Chicago, which is on Lincoln Avenue in in Lincoln Park, and it's running certainly through uh, the holidays. We we had a wonderful time. (laughs) A wonderful time at It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. And what happens at the end when people are uh, leaving? The cast comes out with trays of milk and cookies. And everybody gets if you want it, a little cup of freezing cold milk. You know how Mm -hmm. milk is great when it's really cold? Freezing cold milk, and you can select a cookie off this tray, and and you have milk and cookies. That sounds like the the best time ever. The only thing that would have been better is if when we left the theater, it had been snowing. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been been just absolutely fantastic. And one person that I did want to just highlight in the show – She's also new to the production. She has not been doing it uh, for the past 15 years. This is her first year. Uh, a friend of the show, uh, Camille Robinson, a friend of our show, Booth One. She's a huge fan. Oh, she is. Wow. Um, she's tall, statuesque, beautiful looking, great voice. There's a lot of singing in the show because they stop and they do jingles and then they play uh, Christmas carols and everybody, without hesitation, just jumps in and sings along. They even have a bouncing ball on a screen so that you can sing along to the Christmas carols before the show. Where, where was the audience just so happy at the end of the show where they're smiling and crying? Beaming. And beaming. beaming. Yes. Uh, I was, I was a, an emotional wreck, as I usually am at wow. the end of It's a Wonderful Life, uh, when uh, uh, Harry, his brother, says to my big brother George, the richest man in town, I, I just about lose it. <laughs> <laughs> my, my entrails just fall out, wow. and I and I and it's just it's just done for me. But I was gone even long before wow. that. I I don't I don't know. Um, it, it affected me profoundly, and uh, I, I credit the actors, the director, uh, the production team, and in 15 years they have perfected this product. About 12 years ago, they, I got a call from that theater to ask me to audition. Get out of here. I did for that show. Someone had recommended me. Oh, my god. This was gosh. back in the day when people were recommending me for roles. Well, call Roscoe. He has a good voice. He'll do it. And I don't remember why, but I just I said, no, I can't do it. Shame on you. I you would have been know. brilliant in it. Almost famous is my motto. <laughs> I was almost there. Let's move on to our Remembering Roscoe segment. You have a scrapbook from your grandfather. I and do. We have done this a number of times, and I'm always fascinated by what you'll come up with. 
this, of course, is this Roscoe's grandfather, who Roscoe is named after. And uh, he put together these wonderful scrapbooks throughout his life of great memorabilia and pieces of correspondence and notes and photographs and things. Uh, what do you have for us well, today? Well, I'm going to try this. These are notes from the 50th anniversary of the 1912 Monticello High School reunion. And people sent their stories, the stories of their lives, to my grandfather. And this is very long, so I'm going to just pull out some excerpts and some highlights. These are the memories of a man named Howard Johnson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Howard Johnson, Baltimore, Maryland. For some people, writing a biography would be terrifying. If truly written, it should bring out the bad as well as the good. In my case, I am of the opinion it would be dull reading. But here goes. So he goes on to talk about, graduates from high school, gets his first job at the Haskett and Baker Company, builders of freight and coal cars. My position turned out to be a job in the factory. On the first day at my job, it cost me the end of my little finger by carelessly sticking it in between two large steel girders. Whoops. <laughs> Workman's compensation was then unheard of, so I was laid off for two days without pay. Oh, no. oh my gosh. After 10 months of hard labor, then he decides to go to college. He goes to Hanover College, then to DePauw University, one of the great private schools. That's where my uh, nephew went to school. Yes. Then, like everyone in this book, he enlists in World War I, and he writes that during my stay in Washington, my living expenses were much greater than my army pay and my subsistence allowance. On many an evening, my meal consisted of sweet rolls and a pint of milk. On one or two occasions, I was asked by total strangers to have dinner with them, and boy, did I eat. Then he gets, gets involved in the insurance business, and he writes about the depression and how lucky he is to have a job, and he gets married. And he's very excited to get married, and he, they have two young children. And he writes that during the latter part of 1932, we moved into our new home, and baby Charles followed shortly thereafter. In February of 1933, catastrophe struck. Arriving home from the office, I found my wife and both of my children dead from escaping gas. W what? Yes. He writes, this was nearly the death blow for me also. It took years of self-discipline for me to overcome the terrible shock, but by the help of friends, I gradually began to be myself again. Up to that time, I considered friends as just people who I knew quite well, but this ordeal taught me differently. They were sympathetic and always made it a point to be cheerful. Seldom in the months that followed was I ever alone on evenings or weekends. By the spring of 1934, I began to go to parties and make new friends, the result of which I fell in love again, and yet at September of that year, was married to a Baltimore girl who is still by my side. I believe I owe more to her than anyone in helping me overcome my depressed condition. Two years later, a daughter, Eleanor, was born, and our only child. She is now married to a West Point Army captain and has two children of her own. They recently returned to our country after nearly four years in Germany, and they are the delight of our hearts. Then he goes on and on, goes back to business, goes back into insurance, and this is how he wraps it up. Since retirement, life has been extremely pleasant, and no monotonous moments have been experienced. <laughs> so this is the story of my life up to now. I hope for many years of good health and happiness, 
The year 1912 seems in one sense a long time ago, but it is not the past that interests me now. It is the future, with all the mysterious and fascinating wonders that happen that make life worth living and interesting. It's a grand feeling to be here and to watch for the new things to come. God, with our small planet in the universe, can do wonders. Howard Johnson. Howard Johnson of Baltimore, Maryland. A graduate of Monticello High School in what did you say? 1912. 1912. My goodness. My goodness. Can you imagine going through that and then just recovering? And that you live in a community where, where everyone came to you, made sure that don't let Howard be alone. I'd like to know more about his, his second wife from Baltimore. She was probably a, a wonderful, enormously generous woman, don't you yeah. think? Speaking of wives, <laughs> uh, we, we went to something else recently that you also didn't join us for. And I, I know that you've seen this play. I think you saw it in New York, correct? No, with, I saw it here. I saw Jefferson the, Mays, I, yes, the original I saw production. What became the Broadway production, which inexplicably played at the Museum of Contemporary Art here Weird, yeah, in their weirdly. auditorium. We're talking about, uh, of course, I Am My Own Wife by Doug Wright. We went to the About Face Theater and saw this play. And it's about a, in, just in brief, it's about a transgender woman who lived her adult life pretty much, through Nazi Germany and then subsequently in East uh, Berlin under uh, communist occupation. And how, you ask, was someone of radical uh, lifestyle able to survive through those regimes? Well, that's the story of I Am My Own Wife. And it was really, really good. Uh, We went to the uh, press opening, of course. Of course. Friday to press opening. And what was interesting about this production was that it was inspired to be redone here in Chicago by someone named Delia Kropp. Uh, Delia is a uh, transgender actress. And not only did it work tremendously well, but she was an amazing, an amazing actor. Just really terrific. It was beautifully designed, very simple, very elegant. And it takes place over the course of many, many years. And the conceit here is that a character named Doug Wright uh, comes across this story and decides that he's going to seek this person out in in uh, now what is you know just Berlin and find out about her life and how she was able to manage through these regimes. And it's a series of flashbacks, monologues, her telling her story to him while he records it. Some surprises happen along the way, and there's a sense of betrayal and a sense of mistrust. And then she also becomes sort of famous in a reality show type of way in Germany in her later life. And there's lots of controversy about whether she's telling the truth, whether this really happened this way. Was she actually a spy for the KGB? Oh, the or old unreliable narrator the trick. Unreliable <laughs> narrator trick. Really on the edge of your seat type of stuff. And it's never fully explained or decided upon. It's left to the audience to make their own kind of judgment about whether her life and her telling of her life was embellished much, if at all, or whether these were just extraordinary stories 
And uh, these really did happen the way she describes them. It's a beautiful play, and, and I would enjoy seeing it again. And he's tinkered with the script, because the original production was a one-man show, right? Correct. And this was several actors. Well, this has an actor playing... Doug Wright. Uh, Doug Wright. Um, it had Delia Krop playing the lead role. And then there were two other actors who played minor characters coming in and out, soldiers, interrogators, uh, fellow artists. But yes, it's been expanded slightly to, to four actors. So I, I know that you were not fond of Jefferson Mays in this. As no, a I was. I was. And I think I was jealous because he's such a fantastic actor. And isn't there a segment there where the reporter's asking questions? Yes. And like a number of them. And Jefferson Mays played... He's playing every character, and he did, I don't know if it's five or ten or 18 reporters. Everyone was completely different, and it was doom, 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 doom. Well, I have to, does that, could I ask you? And, uh, but full characters, and just, it, it was breathtaking. Yeah, He's as a, you said, it was a one-man piece yes. at that point, a one-person piece at that point, and he did all the characters. Yeah, so I'm just jealous. It's just smallness on my part. <laughs> If they'd called Jefferson Mays 12 years ago and said, would you do a radio play of Wonderful Life? He would have said yes. Maybe we should change the name of the show to Roscoe's Poor Choices. My better suggestion, however, would be start a different podcast. <laughs> and then you could just focus on that. Um, and and I, might, I might very well just produce it for you. I want to move on to our Kiss of Death segment and talk about someone who I, I found to be rather fascinating, though... I'll wait to hear what you think about this. Uh, Lupita Tovar. I know exactly who knew Lupita Tovar is. I bet you do. Uh, Lupita Tovar was a Mexican-born actress who began her career in silent films. And her big claim to fame was that she starred as an alluring heroine in the Spanish-language version of the 1931 horror classic, Dracula. Well, she passed away just recently at the tender young age of 106. Uh, she was an icon in Mexico and is widely credited, uh, Roscoe, as you probably are aware, too, with really jump-starting the uh, cinema industry uh, in Mexico. Uh, her career lasted less than 20 years, but her work significantly helped promote Mexican cinema, so much so that she became known as the Sweetheart of Mexico. Wow. Was, wasn't that going to be your moniker <laughs> yes. for a while? <laughs> she starred in the Spanish language Dracula as uh, Ava Seward, who falls under this evil spell of the vampire, of course. The film was shot. And this, I didn't know this. I'm going to ask you to expound on this a little bit. This film was shot concurrently with the celebrated English language version in 1931, starring Bela Lugosi, though he did not star in this Spanish language version, and using an entirely different cast, but the same Hollywood sets. Uh, in fact, last year, the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress added this Spanish language Dracula to its list of culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant films. Apparently, it was common for Hollywood studios of that era to reshoot English language films in Spanish and then release them in Spanish-speaking countries. This Spanish language version of Dracula was apparently shot between 7 p.m. at night and 7 a.m. in the morning, this is after the English-language cast had gone home, 
Ms. Tovar is quoted at one point as saying she never even crossed paths with Bella Lugosi. Is this something that was done regularly at the time? They did it in the off hours? It, it was. Sometimes they would film movies in German or in French. There is a German version of uh, Greta Garbo's Anna Christie, and it's Greta Garbo speaking German. She's in it, She's though. in it, and it's a, all the other actors are different. They're German-speaking actors, and that was discovered within the last 20 years and is considered to be superior, as is the, the Spanish-language version that you're speaking of. Of Dracula. Dracula. Better directed, better cinematography, better acting. And something else, her wardrobe, she was uh, uh, quoted as saying, it largely consisted of revealing negligees, which also distinguished it from the English-language version, very different from the clothes that Helen Chandler, who played her character, Ava, wore in the more straight-laced English-language version. So... Was there a sense of, well, these are going into foreign markets, we can be more risque with, with the more. codes yeah. and... Um, well, the production code, the code wasn't it was in not in effect yeah. at that point, but certainly there was a, a, a moral fabric in America that would not allow that kind right. of thing. They, yeah, they couldn't be quite as racy. Apparently, Apparently, she is in some fairly revealing outfits. Well, if you'd let me know, I have this on DVD at home. Is it on Laserdisc or DVD? No, it's on DVD. I could have brought it to And me. have you watched it a number of times? Not, no, I've, I've, yes, I've watched it, but not in years. And it's, and it's good. You think it's, you think it's Oh, yeah, it's really interesting. She was also in the 1932 film called Santa, which means the saint in Spanish, in which she played a country girl who is seduced and abandoned by a soldier and becomes a prostitute. Apparently, that, that really started Mexico's film industry, and the Mexican government even issued a postage stamp featuring her in that role. Wow. Pretty amazing. The uh, Mexican Academy of Arts and Sciences awarded her the Golden Ariel, which is a Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, she was invited to Hollywood at 18, very young, accompanied by her grandmother. She was one of 65 aspiring actresses who were given screen tests. Fox ranked her number one during those screen tests and signed her to a, get this, $150 a week contract for one year, which is the equivalent today of about a hundred grand. Wow. She uh, has said that she's improvised many of the scenes. Directors would say, can you dance? And she would say, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I faked it. I never said no when they asked, can you do this? I always said yes. She married a, a man named Paul Coner. Uh, who was a producer and later a powerful talent agent who represented um, the likes of Ewell Brenner, Greta Garbo, Henry Fonda, David Niven, uh, among many others. They had a daughter, uh, actress Susan Conner, who was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her role in Douglas Sirk's melodrama Imitation, Imitation of, of Life, Life in 1959. Uh, her survivors include uh, many grandchildren, two of whom... Chris and Paul Weitz are filmmakers and screenwriters. They co-produced American Pie and About a Boy, uh, for which they shared an Academy Award nomination with the uh, adapted screenplay writer Peter Hedges. Miss um, Tovar stopped acting in 1945. So as I mentioned right at the top, she had a less than a 20-year career. You simply can't do two things and do them well, she told uh, a reporter once. Something will suffer. It is not satisfactory. I preferred my family to my career, which is why she gave it all up. Lupita Tovar, I'm glad you know so much about her, Roscoe. Yeah. What a, a spectacular moment for me. 
was attending the screening of Imitation of Life, which Susan Coner attended and then did a Q&A. And Lupita Tovar was, I think she was big in Hollywood society. Everyone knew her. Boy, to someone who started in Dracula in 1931 was still alive until last week. That's unbelievable. Yeah, 106. Oh. Boy, was she striking and beautiful. No wonder she went on to be such a star. And, and that role in Dracula takes someone who is absolutely stunning in appearance <laughs> because... Dracula has to be uncontrollably attracted to her. To well, uh, thanks, Roscoe. It's been a wonderful show. Uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, email us at alist at booth-one.com. Hey, we have a new feature on our website. We have now a donate button. <gasps> In two easy clicks and a little bit of information, um, you can donate to our tax-deductible 501c3 Booth One Productions and uh, allow us to keep bringing you, well, thrilling Booth One experiences and episodes and sparkling guest conversation. Do so if you can. Uh, We would very much so appreciate it. We can pay rent for our studio now. Indeed. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And look forward in two episodes to our golden anniversary when we have show number 50. Yeah, we're scheduled to record that on New Year's Eve. Really? We are. Stay tuned. Keep listening. And until next time, take care. 